Hello. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allows you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Well, good morning. Really, good morning. Now that's better. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew and praise team for leading us as we've sought to worship the Lord. If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, as we continue our study, unpacking this book, and I'm excited to dig through chapter 12 this morning of Acts, Acts chapter 12, and we'll seek to kind of try to get through this whole chapter. For those of you who are online, sorry for the delay, all of you were here. Um, and uh, those of you who are here, you're saying, what happened? Well, um, the service that we use uh, went down this morning. So it was nothing on our end. Um, so it was just another glitch that happened. And so we're back online. So thankful for Pastor David and Mike and even Aaron Hesketh, who worked remote this morning uh, to help us try to nav- navigate that. But we're up running online and we're thankful for that thankful for the opportunity that god has given us to be able to do that and so um as we unpack this uh passage this morning um i've titled this morning death and life death and life the word of god increases and multiplied and uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail this morning. We will talk about some of the things that are happening in our world in the weeks ahead. Um, but let me encourage you, one of the things that we're going to look at this morning is the prayer of the church. And there has been a lot that has taken place throughout our week. And let me encourage you, let me plead with you that, uh, that we as the church have a huge responsibility, and that is to pray. To pray. There is power in prayer, and uh, we need to do that. And so before we dig in and we walk through um, this 12th chapter of Acts, would you pray with me? Would you bow your head? And as you bow your head and as you pray, um, would you just take a moment and just examine your own heart and mind? It's so easy to look at others Um, It's so easy for me to be judgmental of others and towards others and to miss the sin, the pride, um, my own arrogance. And so I would ask that for you. you. Would you look and ask God to examine your heart so that you can hear what God has for you this morning? Lord, as we stop and pause in the quietness of this moment, we look and we see our lives when we see the bigness of who you are and the bigness of this world, how small we are. Yet so often, Lord, we, in our pride, in our own desires, um, wanting life to function the way we think it should. Um, Lord, we usurp your authority. 
And Lord, we can quickly get in your way of what you're desiring to do. And so, Lord, this morning we want to come confessing that we fall short of your holy and perfect standard. We are sinners in need and thankful for Jesus Christ as the Savior of our souls. We need your help this morning to be able to cut through all that's happening in our lives and to be able to take these moments and to focus on your word so that we can better understand who you are and how you desire for us to live as your light and as a testimony for those who we come in contact with. So Lord, may your spirit be poured out upon this place and amongst these people. Help us to hear a word from you today, Lord. We thank you that you answer prayer. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for your promises that will forever be true. We love you, Lord, and we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Acts chapter 12. I'll be reading from the ESV, English Standard Version, and you can follow along with your text, um, and uh, hopefully you brought your Bible. If you don't, let me encourage you to do that. It's our textbook. It's more than that. It's God's letter to us that we get to read and study and, uh, and learn from. Acts chapter 12. About that time... Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it, pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and centuries before the doors uh, were guarding the prisons. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went into the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. 
But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judah to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, in the voice of a God, and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. What a text, right? And uh, excited to walk through this with you. This is kind of the last account that we're going to see for a while about Peter. There's going to be a transition, um, and we kind of see it at the end of this chapter about Paul and Paul's future ministry. And so this is kind of this account of Peter where he's in jail and kind of sets up in a way of storytelling that, okay, Peter's been arrested before. We saw that in chapter 4. He was let go um, by the religious leaders of that time. And yet here he is again in jail. And we see that James has already died. He's already been murdered by the sword. And so it kind of is a leading in a way, if you don't read the end of it, the end of the story, it's kind of leading you to say, hmm, maybe this is Peter's last stand. And yet we see God's great deliverance through this and how God's going to use Peter. It is also, it helps us to see the transition of, of the, the disciples, the apostles, and their leadership in Jerusalem is now being moved outside of Jerusalem. If you go back to the end of chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, the last verse, says, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, meaning they, they, had, they had gathered um, some relief to the, the Christian um, Christ followers who were in Jerusalem, and they sent it to Jerusalem, but notice the wording here is critical, and you probably, you might have missed it, you might have picked it up, but they sent it to the elders. This is the first time we see this because all the times before, they're sending it to the apostles. The apostles are the ones leading the church in Jerusalem. But that has changed now. And we see that at the end of chapter 11, where now the church in Jerusalem is being led by a different group of men, a different group that God has raised up 
and who are now leading the church in, in Jerusalem. And so now the apostles are scattered out, and we're going to see that through the rest of this wonderful book as we see Luke's account of how the, the apostles are now out of Jerusalem spreading the gospel. We, we get to this because now here we are in chapter 12, and it's, it's Peter. Peter was called um, by God to preach the good news to the Jews. And he was the, the one who would establish the church in Jerusalem, and then that, from that place it would be scattered abroad. And we're going to see where this now Peter is no longer safe being in Jerusalem. And so God has raised up another group of men to lead the church in Jerusalem, and Peter will go out. So we're given a time frame here where, where we get to see this is Herod the king. This is a time frame where Herod the king um, laid his hands violently upon the church. And so what we're looking at is roughly um, the year 41 A.D., and uh, that's important because of what we're going to look at and, and Dr. Luke's description for us of the time frame. He's very detailed in some of the things that he gives us. So let's kind of walk through this. Verse 2, um, the king, King Herod, um, he, he kills James, um, the brother of John. And so we see here, again, another apostle that has been, um, that's been killed. And so... Um, he's, Herod sees that it pleased the Jews. The Jews, these are not the same Jews that are followers of Christ. These are the Jewish uh, leaders, those who are the, of the Jewish uh, faith who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. And so uh, Herod is not only doing this for himself, he's doing this to please those who are his people, who he is leading. And so he sees that it pleases people. And so with that, um, he's going to also arrest Peter, as we see there in verse 3. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. And then we see that the earnest prayers for him were made um, to God by the church. What we see here is a couple things. First is there's, there's laid violent hands and ultimately James is killed. And so what we need to realize is a reminder for us that violence is nothing new. All right? As we walk through our day, as we walk through today, violence is nothing new against God's church. Violence isn't new even at this point. Go back to the garden Go back to when Adam and Eve come out of the garden, they have children, and they have Cain and Abel, and what takes place with Cain and Abel? There's a murder. These are children of the perfect garden, the parents coming from the perfect garden of Eden, and there's violence. It happened very early on. It's still happening today. And while it is nothing new, it doesn't make it right, nor is it something that we can just accept. We see that those who belong to the church, uh, in verse 1, that Herod was um, pointed and very descriptive of who he was going to go after. 
He was going to go to those who belonged to the church. This wasn't a social club. This wasn't just a group of people who signed up to do their religious duty, who would show up one day a week and, and appear at a worship service and then go home. Those who belonged to the church were sold out and were committed to being followers of Jesus. Knowing that there were people who were going to go after them. Their king was going to come after them. We live in a day and a time where it is becoming more and more real that followers of Christ are going to be targeted. How do you view the church? Do you belong to the church or do you attend the church? That's a big difference. Historian Michael uh, Leon says this. He says, after Jesus' death, the disciples endured persecution and a number of them experienced martyrdom. The strength of their conviction indicates that they were not just claiming Jesus had appeared to them after rising from the dead. They believed it. They willingly endangered themselves by publicly proclaiming the risen Christ. God has called you and I to be the church. What does that look like as you live it out? We see James, the brother of John, he's killed with the sword. Here's Peter, he's arrested um, during the days of unleavened bread. Let me give you a little bit of history context here, okay? Being non-Jewish Gentiles, we probably look at that and say, oh, okay. What that does is that helps to put a date and a time. It makes it real. And so in Nisan 14, the month of Nisan 14, um, that began with a Passover meal. And with that Passover meal then, uh, there were seven days after with unleavened bread, meaning they were to clean out their house and to make sure all the leaven was gone. They had a Passover meal, and then for seven days after that Passover meal, they were eating unleavened bread. And so as Dr. Luke writes this, the Jews would have understood this, and they would have known what this date was and what this looked like. And so in A.D. 41, the Passover, Nisan 14, was April 5th, which is interesting that we can kind of go back and we can say, here's a definite day and a definite time that this is taking place. Um, King Herod, which is Agrippa, he went to try Peter on April 12th. Okay, so that gives us a date on the 5th. All right, is the Passover, and seven days later, on the 12th, King Agrippa is going to try Peter. He's going to put him on trial, all, from all indication, probably leading to his execution. We also get to see some, some insight on the importance of how King Agrippa felt of this 
um, this felon that he had incarcerated. And so Dr. Luke helps us to see that there's four squads of soldiers, meaning that there are two at the door. We get to see that a little bit later in verse six. There's two at the door and there are two soldiers chained to Peter, one on his right, one of his left. And so there's a squad and there's four squads that are put together. And then there's one squad for the four night watches. There's three hours at a time. So there's three hours that the squad is together. And then after three hours, then there's a rotation. And the next four come and they rotate out. This is, this is cool because this gives us in our minds and in and, and, and our it gives us an opportunity to imagine what this looks like, right? It's not just a story. Imagine these are real soldiers chained to Peter outside the doors of the gates. How is Peter going to get out? There is no hope that Peter is just going to sneak out. Peter isn't in jail with a little spoon that he made out of some bone some from a rat that he's digging around in the brick and digging a hole out of, all right? He is chained to two soldiers, and even if these two soldiers, Peter can convince to go in with him, there's a rotation every three hours. So he has to, he's got to convince multiple sets of soldiers to get him out of there, meaning Peter is stuck in jail and there is no way out. It's great that Dr. Luke gives us this insight so that we can see what's really taking place. So as we see this in verse five, Peter was kept in prison. We don't get a picture from Dr. Luke. He does not give us a picture of what Peter's thinking. He doesn't give us what's going on in Peter's mind. But what we do see is we get to see what the church is doing. The church, in verse 5, is earnest in prayer. They're praying and asking God for help. As we walk through this, um, we're going to come to a part where, where Peter is rescued and where the church, uh, in their prayers, we can assume that their prayers are probably not that, that Peter would be miraculously pulled out of jail. I think their prayers at this time are probably ones that, hey, would you allow Peter to be able to be tried in such a way where he's found not guilty and let go? That's what they've seen already in chapter 4. And so uh, we'll get to it in a minute. They're praying earnestly. Now let's see what happens to Peter. Verse 6, now when Herod uh, was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the sentries before the doors were guarding the prisons. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. You know, I read this, and I've read this many times, and it wasn't until I was reading the commentary where it, it dawned on me again. Where have we seen um, this idea that when an angel appears, there's a light. Well, remember the birth of Jesus and the angels appear to the shepherds? 
and there's a huge light. Who wrote that account? Dr. Luke? And here Luke is accounting again. Here is an angel, a messenger from God who's coming, and the light was great. When God shows up, man, all the darkness, it goes away. So the light is there. The light shows in the cell. And then it says, he struck Peter on the side. The Greek term for this isn't that he just nudged him. It actually is he hit him hard. And so that term struck is a good term. Peter, what is he doing right now? He's been in in jail for roughly seven days, and he's going to go on trial in the morning. And how is Peter's response? What is his response here? He's fast asleep. I don't know about you, but I think of this for me, and I think if I'm getting ready to be on trial, I, I might have some sleepless nights. Not Peter. Peter's fast asleep. So much so that the angel has to hit him, hit him on the side and say, dude, wake up. All the rest of the soldiers are fast asleep. So he tells Peter, get up quickly. The text tells us the chains fell off his hands. The angel said, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said, wrap your your cloak around you and follow me. Went out following him. And then I love this where Dr. Luke tells us, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. I think Peter's so, so whether he's really tired and that's why he was um, fast asleep or he was in a sense like, okay, this is a real vision that God has given me. Peter can't make sense of it until, let's keep reading, until a certain point. It says, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. Peter didn't have to touch it. The angel didn't say anything. God's miraculous hand was upon it and so that it opened on its own. And they went out and they went along one street and immediately the angel left him. So they go down a block away from the jail and all of a sudden Peter wakes up. It dawns on Peter that this is not a dream. This is real. Pretty cool. It says in verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. The Jewish people will go back to a reference earlier in this chapter that the Jewish people were happy that Herod had killed James. What Herod and the Jewish people were expecting was that Peter was going to go on trial and that he was going to die as well. Peter sees the miraculous work of God on his life and his provision and ultimately providing a way of escape. So verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, 
the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So this is John Mark. This is our introduction to John Mark. John Mark is going to be an important character that God's going to use uh, in the furtherance of the gospel here. And so we see our introduction here to him. And ultimately, it's his mother whose house Peter is going to go to. So this is a reference point where, get, where, where be, the believers, the early believers in Christ were gathering together. Peter goes there to that house. And when he goes to the house, there's a servant girl. And the servant girl goes to the gate because she hears the knocking. Now remember the time frame here. The time frame is it is very early in the morning. Remember the, the four squads that are taking turns three hours at a time? It's this last group of soldiers that have taken their turn watching Peter. And so when, when the day comes, roughly 6 a.m., all right, the King Agrippa is going to come and ask Peter to be brought. And so this is probably somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. That helps us to understand. Here is a group of people, and what are they doing? They're interceding. They're interceding for their brother, for Peter, who desperately needs their prayers. I, I don't want to chide you, and I don't want to condemn you because I'm just like you. I, I like my sleep. But when was the last time that you stayed up and you were so fervent in prayer that you were awake at 3, 4, 5, 6 o'clock praying for God's hand? So Peter goes, the, this Rhoda, this little girl, she's so excited. She hears Peter's voice. She doesn't even open the gate. She runs back in, into the house and she's like, hey, Peter's out there. And they're like, whatever. Like, you're just imagining this. And she's like, no. Instead of going and getting him, she argues with them. <laughs> she's like, no. This, Peter's out there. No, you're just seeing his angel. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that and what that could mean. All right. They're trying to dismiss the fact that Peter is really outside there. Why? Because it's so early in the morning. They've been up all night praying. And so here they are. They're like, no way that Peter's out there. And so Peter keeps knocking. And finally they go to the door and there's Peter. And can you imagine as Peter talks with them, it's just mass chaos. And so Peter says to them, he, says that he put up his hand and he motioned to them, be quiet. Will you just stop and listen? Let me tell you what happened. And so Peter explains to them what has happened, how the Lord had brought him out of prison. When you look at that sentence in verse 17, it says, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. The subject of that of that verse, of that sentence, is not Peter, it's not them, it's not their prayers, it's the Lord. The Lord is the subject. The Lord has done the work. His hand was in it. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This gives us a little bit of insight, as I said before, at the end of chapter 11, that there is, there's a different group of leaders leading the church in Jerusalem now. 
And so James, the brother of Jesus, and the other leaders are the ones leading the church in Jerusalem at this time. And Peter knows that. And that's why he says what he says. Go and tell James and the other brothers and sisters. Because James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem now. It's no longer the apostles. The apostles have been moved out and they've been scattered. It says, then Peter departed and went to another place. So God is going to move Peter and use Peter in, in different ways in different places now, not just in Jerusalem. Verse 18, and when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. So imagine this, they wake up because the soldiers were asleep. They woke up, there's no Peter and they're going crazy. Dude, what happened? Did you see him? What happened? And ultimately, it says Herod searched for him, and they did not find him. And so he, he has these soldiers come in. He examines them. He asks them questions. And ultimately, what does he do? Off with their head. And they went down. It says they went down from Judah to Caesarea and spent time there. So King Herod the Agrippa moves from Jerusalem. Now he's going to the outskirts. All right, and he's going to go to uh, another tent, another place where he will um, rule from. It says, uh, Herod, now verse 20, was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king chamberlain, they asked for peace. So Agrippa's upset with these groups of people. We don't know exactly why, but there's a famine in the land. Remember chapter 11? We heard that there's a famine in the land. There's going to be a famine in the land. And these people are dependent upon King Agrippa in order to get food. And so they, they, they come and they make a presentation before him. They plead with him. And ultimately, he accepts that. And so in that, he is gathered together on one day. And he's going to make a, a public proclamation. And so in doing that, he brings out this fine arraignment uh, of not only things that are laid before, but his own garment. Josephus gives an account, a historical account of this, that, that King Agrippa wears this clothing that's made out of silver. And so as he goes out in this morning light, he just is radiant. And so he's just shining because he has this garment. He's the king. He comes out. He gives this proclamation. And notice what the people say. The people were shouting, verse 22, the voice of a God and not of a man. What did, the, what did God think of that? Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. It reminds me of another king who earlier this week I was reading about, and King Nebuchadnezzar. And here was King Nebuchadnezzar who thought that he had created this great empire by his power and his strength. And we read in Daniel that, that God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. He humbles him to the point where, where he is out like a, an animal, it says that his nails grew out like, like uh, claws of a hawk. His hair grew so long like a feather. Maybe that's what I'm doing. No, I'm not. 
those of you who don't know, I, this is the longest my hair has ever been. My wife doesn't like it, and so I think it's time. I'll mourn. That's all right. What we see is God humbled Nebuchadnezzar until his heart, till he humbly realized that it wasn't him who established the kingdom. It was God. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back a new man. King Herod Agrippa does not get that opportunity. He dies. It says he dies by worms. He's eaten by worms and breathed his last. There's different thoughts of what that could be. Some think that that was appendicitis, where his appendix broke and led to ultimately his innards um, being decayed. He dies. Maybe he had really worms. It's been one of my fears ever since science class in sixth grade. Oh. All of this has taken place, but we come to verse 24, and verse 24 says this, but, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul, what Dr. Luke is going to give us is now he's going to foreshadow the next chapter and what's happening in the church. And so he gives us this picture of where chapter 11 leaves off Paul and Barnabas leaving the church in Antioch and delivering the gifts to the, to the, the, the followers of Christ in Jerusalem. Now we see at the end of chapter 12, here's Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Saul. They've returned from Jerusalem, where? Back to Antioch, where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. So John Mark is now going with Saul and Barnabas back to Antioch, which will lead to then chapter 13. Here's some takeaway points. Do you understand and know that persecution is real? It is coming and it's here. You may not have experienced it yet, but let me tell you, it is coming. It is coming because there is a war that is taking place and has taken place from the moment that Adam and Eve chose to listen to the lie of the deceiver. As believers, as authentic believers, as followers of Christ, we can express our faith. We need to put together our hopes and our desires, and we express them through prayer. We need to also acknowledge the sovereignty of God and that God does as he wishes. God is sovereign and God is good. Do you believe that? Because if we believe that, then we can leave the fate, our fate in his hands. Do you know that there is nothing that's going to stop the advance of the gospel? We see that here. There's, there's nothing that's going to stop Peter from proclaiming. And when God's done with Peter and his life of proclaiming the gospel, then God will use someone else. Just like he will for you and for me. 
Who am I that God would choose to use me to preach the word of God? Who are you that God would desire for you to live out your faith and to proclaim Jesus Christ? We are nothing special, but we are God's instruments that he desires to use. Will you allow him? Will you allow him to use you? Knowing and believing that nothing will stop the advance of the gospel. It may seem dark. It may seem gloomy for a time, but let me remind you, there is a light. And that light takes away all the darkness. How do you view life right now? Are you a defeatist? Are you an optimist? Or are you a realist? I was having a conversation with my wife on Friday, realizing how I get sucked into watching and listening so much of our media. And I want to be informed. But when you do that, you have this attitude and this, this spirit starts to overwhelm you where it's like, man, this world is going to pot. We aren't called to be defeatists. We serve a risen Savior. Jesus Christ is for real. And he is the same yesterday. And he is the same today. And he will be the same tomorrow. He is our God. And we have the wonderful privilege of following him. And when I believe that he's in charge and that he has a plan for the world to hear who he is, I can have great hope and peace. The spirit of God can be inside of me living so in such a way that I, I don't have to be overwhelmed by what I see. I can be encouraged to know God still sits on the throne. Peter is fast asleep in jail. His life is on the line. There's only hours before he will be tried and brought to death. And yet here he is fast asleep, confident that God had a plan. You go to sleep at night, knowing that it's not dependent upon you or me. But we need to have a group of people praying for one another that the body of Christ loves each other so much that we are fervent in our prayers for one another. So I ask you this, as... Believers, followers of Jesus, are you trusting in God? Do you trust him? Are you trying to manipulate him to do what you feel is right? Don't do that. We see in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't try to twist their fate so that they turn out good. They don't Make God deliver them. They tell the king, if God chooses not to deliver us, we will still not bow to your idol. We serve the one true living God. The Bible makes it very clear that we can not serve both world and Christ. That's your challenge today. 
Are you following Christ? Are you serving him? Have you given your heart to him? If you've trusted Jesus as the savior of your soul, take confidence that you can continue to follow him and that there is nothing that's going to stop the advance of the gospel message. God will continue to grow his church and there is nothing that will stop it. And if we die for Christ, is there anything better? Is there anything better than for you to stand up for your faith? I say there's nothing better. Christ gave his life for me. I owe him my life. Would you pray with me, Lord? We thank you for the opportunity to live for you. We read this text and it's challenging to us as a whole, as the body of Christ, to be people who are fervent in prayer for one another. May we see prayer as not a task that we have to do, but may we see it as a wonderful opportunity to come before your throne asking for your hand and your work in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. Lord, you chose to save Peter in this, in this story. In this account, we see how your hand delivered Peter. There will be a time coming where you allow Peter to be crucified upside down. You don't always save us from this world. But you've promised us to deliver us. You've promised that you'll never leave us. And that you'll never forsake us. You've promised to give us exactly what we need when we need it. You've told us that your grace and your mercy are new every morning. And that your loving kindness will never fail. Lord, may we take hold of your promises. May we encourage one another with your words. Lord, give us boldness and give us strength that we may proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Help us to understand what that looks like as we walk throughout our day. In the weeks ahead. Thank you that you loved us enough. That you delivered us. You saved us. While we were enemies of yours. You sacrificed your life. Christ died for us. So that we could have eternal life. The life we now live. We live in Christ. May we glorify you. May we give you praise each day with a view knowing that you are in charge, you are sovereign, and you are good. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that brings it alive in our lives. Help us not to forget it. In Jesus' name.